Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Uh, folks, our focus today is on what is called uh, post-acute care. This is an incredibly important issue in healthcare today and in the future of healthcare, particularly around creating a new healthcare. What we're going to be focusing on is that what might be considered the post-hospitalization time, whether it's in uh, nursing home, rehab centers, hospice, home health care, or just when patients go home after a hospitalization of some sort. That is generally what is referred to as the post-acute care space. It is probably from a individual and family perspective, a patient perspective, it is probably one of the most vulnerable periods of time in the continuum of care. You've been in the hospital, you're not feeling well, things have been happening, and you've got to make some decisions about where to go after the hospitalization, what is the safest place for you to be. Obviously, and we'll get into this in the conversation, it's assumed that most people and their families would like to get home, but for many reasons, that's not possible. Uh, You may not have the strength. You may just not be healthy enough. It may not be safe. You may not be able to ambulate or walk around, and so you, you may be debilitated, so you need these other services that are available, these other placements that are available in the so-called post-acute care space. From a healthcare perspective, this is a really important area because uh, so much money is spent in the post-acute care space. Uh, you know, these statistics abound. Uh, something like 25% of all healthcare costs are spent in the last few weeks of a person's life. I believe in our, our expert on the phone today uh, on the show will will correct me, but I, I've seen something like 25% of all medic, of Medicare expenditures are actually spent in the post-acute care space on this space. So again, it is a very, very concentrated area where a tremendous amount of, of the cost of care are spent. And so what that means is there's a tremendous opportunity for improving efficiency and effectiveness, leading to better outcomes of care, more patient-centered care, and very importantly, a great opportunity to actually save money in the healthcare realm, which we know is a critically important issue in healthcare today. So uh, so it's it's a really important topic. I would say one more thing about it, just in terms of, of teeing up the conversation and providing some background. It is probably... Uh, of all the areas in healthcare, I think it is probably one of the most opaque areas. And what I mean by that, it's an area that is so complex. I would say that the vast majority of clinicians and, and for sure the, the overwhelming majority of patients and their family members really don't understand how this area works. I will say, as I've been studying this area and working in this area over the past few weeks and months, uh, I've come to understand how highly regulated nursing homes are and home health care is and rehab facilities are, maybe 
overregulated because it has tremendous burden to the people who are trying to do the work. But on the other hand, it's also an area that there's tremendous variation and variability in terms of how do we figure out where someone should be optimally going to in this post-acute care space. And so it's a mixture of highly regulated and also tremendous variation of care. And I think from my reading of the literature, I think there's tremendous overutilization, which is to say, I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to improve care and lower costs. And so we're going to get into all of that. Um, and we have uh, someone on the show today who's a tremendous expert with tremendous amounts of experience in this area, and that's uh, Andy Ediburn. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Andy. Um, Mr. Ediburn is a principal with Premier. He has uh, nearly 20 years of healthcare consulting experience, and his focus has, in fact, been in this post-acute care space and particularly with senior care services. He is nationally recognized as an expert on post-acute care. Uh, the areas of expertise include strategic planning, acute post-acute care integration, provider network development and managed care. He has spent years uh, uh, guiding organizations through their strategic thinking and planning around acute and post-acute care partnerships new program and facility development and redevelopment efforts and establishing value and outcome-oriented relationships as organizations transition from the fee-for-service environment to more of a managed care, value-based care environment. Mr. Edderburn is a frequent speaker. He's an author on a range of topics, including post-acute care payment and quality, healthcare reform readiness, as I mentioned before, strategic planning, uh, post-acute care integration, network development, population health, and even change management. He has written quite a bit. He's also been quoted in some prestigious journals like Becker's Hospital Review and Modern Healthcare, as well as other publications. He serves on the board of Volunteers of American National Services and as an executive advisor to private equity and elder technology organizations. Prior to joining Premier, Mr. Edderburn was vice president with the GEHC Camden Group, where he led post-acute care initiatives across a range of engagements, including strategic advisement and plan development for post-acute care and aging services organizations. He's guided hospitals, health systems, accountable care organizations. Before joining the Camden Group, he led the consulting practice area for continuum strategy and integration engagement at the Health Dimensions Group in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's also held uh, other senior consulting positions in healthcare marketing communications as a consulting manager at Clifton Larson Allen, where he managed consulting engagements and provided direct consulting guidance to skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, home health agencies, senior housing organizations, as well as the hospitals and other healthcare systems. So you can see, I could go on and on. This is an individual who has decades of experience not just from an academic perspective, and he is uh, quite academic about it, but he's also got hands-in experience, roll-up-your-sleeves experience working with lots of stakeholders, and he has really been focused in the space that we're going to be talking about today. On a more personal note, I have had the privilege of listening to Mr. Edderburn speak on this topic, and I have to say, I spent a couple of days at a post-acute care symposium that Premier put on a few months ago, and Andy led that section, and he did just an outstanding job of taking some very complex material and actually really simplifying it and presenting it to a large group of physicians and administrators who, again, are trying to understand 
uh, how this area works and what's happening in the market, what are the big changes, what their implications are, and how to be prepared for what's going on and how to really optimize care in this space. So without further ado, uh, Andy, how are you doing today? I'm good, Zev. Thanks very much for the opportunity to join you today. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm really delighted. It's taken us a while to, to get this uh, conversation together, but I'm really glad we're talking today. So, so let's start. And Andy, again, I think, you know, I, I'd love to sort of start with, uh, you know, what, what is the current situation? What are some of the big problems and challenges in, in the post-acute care space? Then shift over to what's happening in the market that's going to create some changes and then really spend some time talking about uh, what organizations can do to really build the future to create a new healthcare in the post-acute care space. And, you know, I know you have some very, very definite ideas about the direction we should be heading, what it should look like, who's doing some good work, and we'll, we'll wrap up with that. So why don't we start with... Um, what what is what are some of the major challenges problems in terms of post acute care today? You know, it's a it's a it's a great place to start. I, I think the probably the the biggest issue that that challenges post acute care organizations in general really stems from the fact that post acute care for for years has really been kind of a it's an afterthought for a lot of organizations. So you you raise a good point for folks who are in the hospital and discover as a result of their hospital stay, they're going to need some degree of post-hospital care, whether in their home, in a in an institutional setting like a skilled nursing facility or an acute rehab facility. And, you know, prior to the advent of, of the ACA, the, the shift to value-based thinking, the, the new models we're moving to, uh, we've never really thought about post-acute care as an essential part of the, of the continuum. It has been. There's no question about it. Um, four out of 10 Medicare, just by example, four out of 10 Medicare beneficiaries end up in post-acute care after a hospital stay. But the, the accountability associated uh, with, you know, downstream care from the acute environment, uh, no one's ever really paid that close attention to. Then we come to the ACA, we start talking about readmission penalties, people start taking risks, whether it's one-sided, two-sided in the ACO environment. Post-acute care is a Part A covered service in Medicare. Um, it's a big component of Medicare Advantage spending, uh, Medicare Advantage spending as well. And suddenly, folks in the hospital space, in particular, who had never paid attention to this, suddenly are are held accountable for what happens in the post acute care environment. So there's a the the biggest challenge I would say facing it is that it's one it's it's never really had the spotlight shined on it in the way that it has been in particular the last few years and it's widely misunderstood not only by by the public and the cons even the consumers who who go through it but by by hospital administrators by by hospital and healthcare professionals who now are are joined at the hip to one degree or another in that post acute space and so the intensity and focus around this area um, has created a lot of turbulence for providers. It's created a lot of, uh, uh, of confusion and, and persistent misconceptions on the part of hospitals and health systems. And at the same time, it's, it's, it's risen up from a, from a quality perspective. We've never really had to think about quality in this space. And there's been some groundbreaking, really, findings around post-acute care that, that really have gotten people's attention. So that's really, what, what a great setup. Thank you for, for really... Uh... You know, giving us a history of what's been happening and, and, and why people are turning to the post-acute care space and, and, and it's important now and health in, in importance in healthcare. So if you were gonna, you know, if you were asked, you know, what are the top two, three or so um, 
opportunities. You know, we could either couch it as challenges, problems, or opportunities in the post-acute care space for the uninitiated. Um, if you were talking to, again, hospital administrators and clinical leaders uh, who, who are trying to figure out this opaque area that they've never really been exposed to, where would you say there's room for improvement um, and opportunities for improvement in the, in the post-acute care space? And again, there's different, when we say post-acute care space, again, you know, at least, and, and please correct me, because again, I'm, I'm just a, a student in this. You, you clearly have years and years of experience. Um, but I think about the rehab centers, uh, what we call uh, SNFs or nursing homes, uh, home health care, which is patients going to the home, but sending professionals into the home, uh, therapists and nurses and social workers, which is the home health care space, as well as hospice. Uh, and, and of course, just being sent home uh, again without that help. So what, what, where are the opportunities? Where, where's the, the places where we've been challenged and we can make improvements? Sure. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are a couple of different things. Um, the, probably the biggest one, and I think it's, it's, it's awareness. Part of it goes to awareness and understanding about what it, you know, post-acute really is. If, if I'm a hospital or health system leader and suddenly I'm, I'm accountable or I need to understand this whole world of post-acute better, there are a couple of things that are, that are really sort of foundational to that. The first thing is, is that post-acute, while it's part of the continuum, is not a continuum unto itself. Post-acute is really a, an array of venues or services that have emerged to really address defined very, very, very much in some ways defined or discrete populations and in some general populations otherwise. So when we talk about the post-acute world, we really, we, we talk about skilled nursing facilities. We talk about home health agencies. We talk about inpatient rehab or acute rehabilitation. We talk about LTACs, long-term acute care hospitals. And every single one of these venues serves very, very distinct patient populations. Um, at, at the far extreme high acuity end of the equation are acute rehabilitation and long-term acute care hospitals that really are they're, they're acute level facilities. They manage people who need to be in an acute level of care, but their, their particular medical condition or diagnosis is not well suited to the short-term acute care environment. And so as a result, these specialized uh, types of environments have emerged to serve those types of populations. Um, then, then there's really the, the biggest chunk of post-acute providers, which are home health agencies that provide services to individuals in their home who have need for some degree of skilled medical care or, or therapy services in their home. And then we have skilled nursing facilities, which, you know, a lot of folks, we refer to them as, as subacute. We refer to it as, as nursing homes. Uh, a lot of people talk about long-term care facilities. You know, skilled nursing facility, nursing home, essentially the same thing. Um, variations, variations in licensure that have really emerged as, as this, as this environment for folks who need some degree of care at, after the hospital stay, but they're not at the acute level of care that requires some of those higher ends of the ends of the continuum. So there's, there's understanding the variation that exists in that environment. What, what that creates though is a challenge oftentimes that's existed in the acute environment, which is really working to understand, um, where patients need to go, because there really is no defined or criteria set that says, you know, if a patient presents with these types of conditions or these issues, they're appropriate for this particular post-acute venue or so on. That's only really started to become a lot more concrete for providers and some leading providers across the country who've, who've really figured out how to do what we refer to as post-acute selection, to figure out where people are appropriate. There are some regulatory things that guide it, but for the most part, it's an unknown territory. I think the other big issue is, is that because this is in relatively unknown environment for a lot of hospital leadership, 
and a lot of folks um, who haven't dealt with it in the past, the, the, the understanding around who are these people? Who am I working with? In a typical hospital, community acute care hospital in, in our country today, they may have relationships with between 30 and 40 post-acute entities, you know, a mix of home health agencies and nursing homes and so on. And, and the reality is you, you can't exert any kind of span of control over 40 providers that are spread across your service geography area. You've got to figure out how to how to work with a, a more distinct or discrete set of providers because if, if you're being held accountable for cost, for quality, for outcomes, if you want to improve um, the experience of, of care for patients and, and you want to overall get better results and better outcomes and just improve overall experience, um, doing it with 30 to 40 providers is is like herding cats. And so there is opportunity, tremendous opportunity, and really hoping, helping to understand what are the right post-acute venues I need to be using and what are the right post-acute venues I need to be partnering with to really affect change um, in, in the delivery of care after the hospital and then further down into the broader community. So let me let me ask you a question about this because – so what I hear you saying, and tell me if, I, if I'm not hearing you correctly, but what I'm hearing you saying is that one, one opportunity for hospital systems is to create a smaller network of post-acute care facilities that they can wrap their arms around in terms of you know, assuring optimal care uh, as, as well as assuring the ability to communicate and integrate care with. So that's, that's what I, you know, I heard you say. Um, just want to before I ask the next question. Just want to check that is is that is that am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, it is. I mean, that's one of the that is one of the key strategies um, that has emerged in practice over the last few years around the country for a lot of organizations. It's not the only strategy, but it's one of the more dominant strategies. Okay, and then and then in terms of um, in terms of deciding that the folks in the hospital deciding. Uh, you know, what is the best place for a patient to go uh, to after the hospital? Again, whether it be a decision, can they go home or do they need to go to one of these post-acute care facilities that you defined? Now, my understanding is that both the nursing home and the so-called SNF and as well as home health care, that there are, are that there are some criteria for what, what you have to uh, have or be, what situation you need to be in for a patient to be qualified to get into those. And so that's my understanding, but there's still a lot of variation uh, in terms of who makes those decisions, how those decisions are made. And, and again, even you know, the, the optimal placement of patients. So can you speak to that issue? Um, I, I'll say that I try to speak to that issue. There's no question that there is, uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of variation in provider organizations and in hospitals and health systems across the country about um, uh, about the decision process or the, the processes associated with how uh, post-acute options are arrived at and presented to potential patients um, and, and really what the what particular patients would benefit from in terms of a setting. There are it, there are regulatory um, conditions that apply for some of the post-acute venues. By way of comparison, um, there's a very narrow grouping of diagnoses that are appropriate for acute rehabilitation as a setting. Um, there are uh, some ev very evolving and changing criteria 
about what patients are appropriate for LTAC. More, more specifically, what sorts of things an LTAC can actually get reimbursed for is the driver there is, is payment. SNF and, and home health, the nursing home and the home health environment is a lot more, uh, is a lot more fluid. Um, both of those settings have emerged to be relatively comparable. And, and really what, what has driven it more than anything else is, is, is the individual to one degree or another capable, the patient capable really of, of being more engaged in their self-care? Are they homebound or do they, do they have a caregiver in a supportive environment that is their home that can help them, but they have some skilled need? A lot of those patients can be managed very effectively in a home health agency. For folks who have more complex medical needs that really need to be in the environment of a skilled caregivers, a la registered nurse and nursing staff, that's where the nursing home comes into the equation where you need around-the-clock care. Um, and so a lot of things that, that determine, you know, is a patient appropriate for SNF, um, there are some requirements that dictate whether or not a nursing home is going to get paid. It's what we call the, the three, the three night stay, the three midnight rule in order to qualify for a Medicare covered service in a nursing home. You have to have been in an acute hospital for three midnights, but a lot of hospitals discharge individuals to nursing homes after one or two day stays who may benefit from that stay or need to be there. It's just that Medicare is not going to cover the stay. Um, the, the reality is, is because there is so much um, similarity between patients who could potentially go one way or another, a lot of the determinant around differences between SNF placement or home health coverage for an individual are very social determinant uh, driven. It's, it's really kind of interesting. The, does the living environment support an individual to be able to receive care in their home? Um, those decisions are, are very much not always necessarily medically oriented as much as they're social determinant oriented. So as, as, as patients are cared for in the acute environment, um, the discharge planning process and just the case management process in acute has a lot to do with determining um, or, or evaluating how patients or where patients may end up in the post-acute environment. It's often case managers and discharge planners who are involved in that decision process or in that selection process, working with a patient or family member. A physician will oftentimes have input to that process. One of the questions I often ask people in the work that we do in, in helping people understand the acute post-acute interface, re-engineering that space is really to understand who are the, who are the, not necessarily the decision makers because the patient is always the decision maker and patients always have choice in these equations, but who are the drivers in, in guidance around post-acute care? Is it case management? Is it the case manager? Is it the charge nurse? Is it the family member? Is it the hospitalist or a physician? And every, to, every market across the country, every provider organization is a little bit different. There is no one unified way that everybody does it. So that's, um, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at that because, right, I, but, I, but, you know, that's what I hear, that's what I read, and that's what I observe is that just tremendous variation. And it probably varies not only from institution to institution, but within institutions, probably by floor and by units in the hospital system. Tremendous variation, again, who's making those decisions, how they're making them. Uh, you know, you have outside uh, vendors, you have these nursing homes who have people in the hospitals who are essentially trying to market their, uh, their uh, 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 facilities to the patients and their families. So it, it just seems like there's a tremendous opportunity to standardize this and, and to optimize it so it's about the patient and their family and less about the market. But what do you think about that? 
Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's not uncommon for me or a member of my team or colleagues I've worked with over the years in this space that you'll, you'll go into a, a hospital case management or discharge planning department and, and you'll find that, you know, case managers across five different med surge units have five different approaches to how they, they work through this process. And it is, it's a space that is incredibly ripe for, 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 creating standard practice, for coming up with uniform ways of doing it. A lot of times when we work on um, the, the acute, post-acute redesign and working on that interface, um, we focus on a 96-hour window of time, which is the 48 hours that precede the acute discharge and 48 hours after the post-acute admission. And there is so much variation in that 96-hour window around process, around practice, around the way practitioners or clinicians interface with one another. There's tremendous variation in the information that is provided um, from one setting to another. And if you can work to standardize and systematize most of the predominant behaviors that happen around that big, big, big transition of care, um, you can uh, you can really improve just not only overall practice, um, you, you make providers happier, patients get happier, you reduce the likelihood of, of readmissions that, that happen in the post-acute space, oftentimes within the first 72 hours, um, simply because, you know, there was not good awareness around, say, for instance, medications, or there wasn't a warm handoff between clinicians. Systematizing and standardizing that process is key to reducing variation in that space. And and one of the reasons that that's also somewhat significant is that, and this is probably another big issue around post-acute, that usually blows most people's minds, but it's it's a real thing. The 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 amount of spend that we generate as a as a as an industry in post acute care is incredibly variable. The IHI did a did a fascinating study, and they looked at all of the the Dartmouth Hospital referral regions all over the country, and and they discovered that they, they were looking really for variation in Medicare spend. So, what was the variable spend per beneficiary? You know, in the acute environment uh, with with pharma, with outpatient, and so on. And without question, the widest amount of variation in spending was tied up in, guess what, post-acute care. 74% of the variation in Medicare spending in our country is attributable to post-acute use. And that's because everybody kind of does it a different way. Wow. That's a tre- that's tremendous variation. Um, what are some of the, you know, so it, it it's, it's clearly sounds like you're uh, a champion for standardizing the process for all the reasons you articulated. What are some of the challenges to to doing that to to, sta- to optimizing the process and standardizing it? Um, well, just the the nature of the the nature of the variation in and of itself is probably the single biggest impediment. Part of it is part of it is what a colleague of mine refers to as tribal knowledge, and it, and it goes to that variation in in hospitals that exist within one hospital or within hospitals in a system because everybody does it a different way. The 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 just the process of bringing people together to define a standard way of doing things. Um, in and of itself can be a Herculean task. A lot of that is, is then embedded further down in in how we define or approach things differently. Uh, a number of years ago, I was working with an organization and we were talking about defining quality measures uh, between the acute and the post-acute space. A sponsoring uh, accountable care organization was eager to develop a, a, a post-acute network and we wanted to measure falls, falls as a, as a great quality measure. Well, you know, the reality is how we define a fall in the acute environment 
is entirely different than how we define a fall in the nursing home environment and in the home health environment. And before you can bring all of these stakeholders together in a room and say, we're going to measure falls, you've got to start with how are we collectively going to define a fall? And so when you're working at these very, very base levels to get common ground or common understanding around things, um, it, it takes time. I, I tell people a lot of times, you know, building or, or picking, a lot of people say, I want to pick the best post-acute providers in a market and that's going to be my network. Picking providers to be in a network that's easy. It really is. It's relatively easy to identify high-performing providers to be in a network. Engaging with those providers to actually accomplish change, to work on the 96 hours, to disseminate care pathways into the post-acute environment, to, to focus on end-to-end -end longitudinal management of the patient um, to a common goal, that takes time. That's hard work. That's that's reengineering process, and so it's 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 challenging um, in that particular environment. The other thing about it is is that a lot of the post acute provider space is is highly divergent. Um, about seventy percent of the nursing home environment is proprietary. It's for profit. It's operated a lot of it by individuals. Some of it. Uh, major provider or, or large post-acute chain organizations. They've all got different ways of doing things in a market. They're oftentimes very competitive. You bring, say, 10 nursing home organizations into a room together and you say, oh, guess what? You're all going to be in a network. I want you to all get along and learn how to do things the same way. That in and of itself right there creates all sorts of potential challenges. But, but to their credit, I will say most of the post-acute organizations understand what's at stake. They recognize that if they don't raise their game, if they don't start increasing their performance capability, they're, they're going to be left behind because in an environment that is oversaturated with providers and post-acute care is oversaturated with providers, there's somebody else who could probably potentially do it a little bit better. And with that risk constantly over, hanging, hanging over your head, that somebody else could come along and take your volume as a post-acute provider, that's, that's the kiss of death for post-acute organizations. And so most of them, even though they're, they're competitive and it's, sometimes it's hard to get everybody to sit around the table and, and agree to stuff, um, they recognize what's at stake. And most of them, um, while, they, while they say are willing to change, um, they know they have to. Mm -hmm. let, let me, boy, you, you, you just opened up so many potential areas to explore and really important, uh, both from a healthcare perspective, as well as from a patient family perspective. So to me, there seems to be, you, you talked about a couple of things. One is this idea of how patients are managed in, in the post-acute care space. And particularly, I, I think, uh, you know, my mind goes to the nursing home or SNF. Now, in the hospital over the past few years, uh, there's been a, a, a lot of work in terms of standardization. There's a lot of uh, effort around quality and quality improvement and, and really measuring uh, hundreds and hundreds of factors that go into patient safety and quality of care. When I look at how nursing homes are measured and reported on, and although I, I would say that they are, they seem to be highly regulated, and, and I see the tremendous burden, quite honestly, in terms of that regulation, given the amount of resources nursing homes have uh, to, to, to meet those regulations and to fill out those forms. It still seems to me that the bar is really low, that this is really, really basic stuff. Um, it's not really measuring how well patients are being taken care of in terms of quality and safety in the nursing homes and even some of the stuff I've heard you talk about in terms of, 
you know, how many seconds does a nurse actually spend in the nursing home on a patient per day? Uh, and it's, it's really a limited amount of time. Um, and again, you know, what are the safety? What are the quality metrics? And to your point, you know, there's, there's so these are independent organizations that, uh, that are, you know, a hospital could have numerous affiliations, uh, numerous nursing homes around how, how do they even understand who's good, who's not good? How do they track the care? And so can you speak, can you dive in a little bit into, into that? I mean, it just, it seems to me that's just a huge area for an opportunity for improvement. It, it's it is it is the probably the biggest central area in terms of an opportunity for improvement in the in the post acute space. So let's let's talk about nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities by way of example in that space. Um, you know the 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 current payment system what's well, in flux the the long standing historical payment system for the skilled nursing facility industry um, is driven in large part by a, um, an evaluation process that determines what um, the nursing home is going to get paid for managing that individual. And it's important to keep in mind, nursing homes get paid on a per diem basis. They're getting a payment every day for that individual. And that payment is tied to acuity. Um, and, and so the more complex the patient is, uh, you would think, or, or you, it, reality is, is you get, the nursing home receives a bigger payment for that. But what's also tied to that is, is the degree of therapy service that you can provide. So if you've got a complex patient who needs a lot of therapy, um, those patients are oftentimes some of the best paying patients. And there are measures that have emerged in, in, in what has historically been called the MDS or the minimum data set that, that helps define quality in the nursing home environment. One of the challenges associated with that is that a lot of those measures are tied to um, performance around long-term care. Uh, about 70 still to this day, about 70% of the business that's done by nursing homes in our country is custodial care. It's long-term care. Uh, the the 25 to 30% is, is the short-term post-hospital care, what we call post-acute care. So nursing homes are a, a business that really operates two financial models or two business models in the context of, of, of one physical environment, one physical building. The One of the important things to evolve in the last four or five years has been a, a very, very increasing amount of data available around post-acute quality. And so a lot of that data is publicly available. It's publicly reported. Um, uh, one of the first uh, five-star rating systems to emerge in Medicare was tied to nursing homes. And so as a result, uh, CMS ranks all of the Medicare-certified nursing homes in the country based on this five-star rating. The five-star rating is built out of measures around staffing. I'll come back and talk about staffing in just a second. It's built on that, that depth of quality data they get um, that, that nursing homes have to report. And then the final part is tied to inspections or the survey process in the nursing home environment. And, and you're right. These are incredibly regulated environment. There's a tremendous amount of regulatory pressure that these providers have to, to have to operate under. And, and, and so it is, a, it is a very, very challenging operating model. And one of the expectations of these provider organizations is for them to keep increasing their quality overall, while at the same time managing a much more increasingly complex patient population. There, there was a time where you really didn't do a lot of skilled complex care or complex management in the nursing home environment because it was predominantly a custodial or a long-term care model. And so as that has changed, the expectations of performance around these settings continues to increase. And they're, they're not staffed. From a staffing perspective, they're not staffed in the way 
that that hospital operators are familiar with or comfortable with. It's not uncommon in a nursing home environment in a long-term care unit where you've got an RN to patient ratio that's 1 to 20, 1 to 25. And you, at those kind of ratios, can you deliver um, very, very consistent, effective clinical management of patients? No, you can't. Um, but when you when you get into more complex populations, these short term populations, those ratios adjust. They adjust down, um, but they're not at they're 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 nowhere near the level that that we use oftentimes in an acute environment. And so it's a uh, it's a very very challenging space for people to to deploy the right amount of clinical uh, resources against. And and for a lot of nursing home organizations, by way of example, and more and more for home health organizations, they're battling the same sort of clinician shortage that we experience. Experience in, in other settings of healthcare, um, so it's you know people will say it's hard to find good nurses. Well, it, it, it is for a lot of organizations a challenge to find good nurses. That all said, the expectations around quality for post-acute are always increasing. The amount of data that's available to us as 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 a healthcare industry around post-acute quality is always improving. It's improved tremendously in the last two to three years. And for organizations who really are advancing into this space. Say, for instance, you know, ACOs, folks stepping into bundled payment or bundled payment at the advanced opportunities that are in play right now. There's a tremendous amount of data for you to really burrow down from an analytics perspective and to understand who are the high quality performing providers. Um, if you've got access to that kind of data, you can really understand where the opportunities lie. And, and you know how to, I'll say at the same time, you know how to weigh that data uh, against some of the operational characteristics of provider organizations on the publicly reported data to really identify who are the premium providers in a given market, whether it's nursing homes, home health, acute rehab, and so on down the line. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get to in a minute, uh, I'd like to get to some of the changes that are happening in the market and, and implications. But before we do that, I, 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 I'm going to fast forward a little bit because what you just said is, you know, so important about uh, I think, again, from a patient-centric uh, perspective, as well as, quite honestly, an economic perspective, because the hospital systems are now accountable uh, in these new payment models for what happens not just in the hospital and, and, and not just the readmissions uh, rates, but also what happens in the post-acute care space. It's that whole bundle of payment. Uh, and so, so if you're a hospital system and you're trying to figure out how to optimize care, knowing some of the um, uh, resource challenges uh, that the uh, SNFs are facing uh, and potentially home health care is facing, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you reach out, integrate uh, with, uh, manage, if in some sense, the care that is being delivered in the post-acute care space? Do you, do you have to hire care managers and have them oversee what's going on? Do you I mean, you know, are there new data sets that you need to be monitoring more closely to see, you know, are these are patients getting the kind of care? Are we know that uh, that length of stays in nursing homes have been uh, based largely on the fact that um, that Medicare pays for the first 21 days or so, and so we're seeing patients basically staying uh, consistently for 21 days, and somehow magically most patients get discharged on the 22nd day. So what 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 does a healthcare system uh, hospital system need to be thinking or doing to manage in the future, both from a quality perspective and outcomes perspective, as well as a cost perspective. Well, there's there's great questions. Let me let me clarify just a couple of things there. When 
Medicare pays for in benefit periods, a hundred days of coverage in a skilled nursing facility. The first 21 days they pay full after day 21, the, the, the patient beneficiary has to pay a copay. And so the, the average length of stay nationally right now in a nursing home is about 25 and a half days. That, that 21 day has emerged, emerged as a target for a lot of people because of the copay issue, but the national average is still well above that. There are a lot of provider organizations who still look at Medicare lengths of stay in excess of 30, 35, 40 days. I've worked with some organizations just recently who have post-acute networks and, and they've set targets of, you know, we want all our nursing homes to have an average length of stay of 30 days. And these are at-risk accountable care organizations. And I, I just kind of scratch my head and I say, why are you setting length of stay that high? To which they say, well, they were at 35. Well, you got them from 35 to 30. Why don't you take them from 30 to 25 and so on down? Because it's that utilization component that, that drives the spend. Every day, on average, a person sits in a nursing home, it's roughly a $480 to $500 impact to the ACO. So long lengths of stay, um, which are highly financially beneficial to the nursing home, are uh, a huge financial downside for an ACO. And quite frankly, for a lot of patients, they're not the ideal result. Most folks who end up, most patients who end up in post-acute care are oftentimes focused on one thing, which is how long am I going to be here? And how soon can I get home? And so the the move nationally to try and reduce post-acute utilization, because it's highly variable, like I said, and we spend a lot of money in this space as a nation, is driven in large part because it's it's a way to, to, to figure out how to deliver the right amount of care in the right space for the right amount of time. Um, and it, it really responds to, you know, the growing consumer interest in in, in, in having shorter lengths of stay. To your question about quality, how do you burrow down into that space? How do you really affect change in the environment? It's a combination of things. Um, for, for folks who've been very, very uh, successful in reducing utilization and addressing the sniff length of stay, in defining what an appropriate amount of home health coverage, they've, they've deployed care management models, care coordinators in the space, post-acute care coordinators. Some folks have gone so far as to develop quasi-utilization management models that, that they really use to try and address post-acute utilization. One of the interesting things around that there's a difference between Medicare Advantage and Medicare fee-for-service, I referenced a little while ago, you know, that the average length of stay for fee-for-service is about 25 and a half days. Medicare Advantage is oftentimes a week less than that. So it's in the 17 to 18 day range. Well, why is that? Well, it's because Medicare Advantage manages post-acute use via utilization management model. If you're a nursing home and you're under contract to one of the major payers under an MA contract, and their beneficiary ends up in your nursing home, you're going to get a pre-authorization for seven days, 10 days of coverage. Um, and you're going to be monitored by a MedAdvantage case manager who's going to be looking at your utilization and what you're doing for that patient to try and get them home and get them out of that environment. And Medicare Advantage has been very, very good at understanding how to uh, address and manage not only post-acute utilization, but also to a degree post-acute quality. If provider organizations really want to figure out how to reduce their post-acute spend or reduce post-acute utilization, MedAdvantage has already figured out how to do that. We simply have to embrace those kind of models. We have to invest in the resources to manage that population in the post-acute environment. And, you know, the nursing home administrators and operators hate it when I say this, but the reality is, is that they've already demonstrated that they can, they can produce outcomes at those shorter lengths of stay to the expectations that Medicare Advantage plans are, are asking of them. Um, the reality is, is that we just simply haven't asked of it in the fee-for-service environment. ACOs, a lot of ACOs 
haven't invested appropriately to, to deploy the resources into that space to affect those kind of changes. Uh, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't keep an eye on them, and it, it's a sad state of affairs, but if you don't keep an eye on them and monitor them to those targets, they will continue to overutilize the, the benefit opportunity and keep those patients in as long as possible. It's a financial boon to them and, it, and it's of interest to them. Got it. That's really helpful because like you said, it's 100 days that Medicare fee-for-service will pay. And uh, like you're saying, the nursing homes have already demonstrated they know how to manage patients and decrease lengths of stay because they're doing it with Medicare Advantage. And it, and it actually may be, well, it may not be that they know, but the Medicare Advantage uh, overlay is actually what's leading to that. So it sounds like we have a lesson to learn. Hospital systems can take a lesson from Medicare Advantage payers. Okay. That's really helpful. And um, so I assume in the work you do, you you help organizations essentially um, emulate what the Medicare Advantage payers are, are doing in that regard. Yeah, when it's when it's appropriate, when that is, you know, the, the strategy they, that, that they want to focus on or they need to engage. The thing I would say is that, you know, before you can even start focusing on these kind of issues, um, around, say, improving engagement, trying to address and improve clinical skill or capability in the post-acute SAT space. Because if you want these provider organizations to address shorter lengths of stay, they've got to be a lot more capable on the front end of the post-acute stay from a, from a clinical management or clinical delivery perspective. Um, that, that requires a commitment of time from, say, a sponsoring organization or a network sponsor like a, like a hospital or an ACO. But before you can even get this kind of dynamic, You've got to figure out, you're back to figuring out from the 30 or 40 nursing homes, who are the right ones I want to be working with. So it's very, very much an incremental process. Um, you can't just, uh, I've, I've watched a lot of organizations across the country in the last two or three years go out and pick pick a network, you know, based on whatever criteria they've identified and said, these, these 10 are now our network, and then put incredibly unrealistic performance expectations in front of them to say, you know, now you're in our network, we want your readmission rate to be 10%, we want your length of stay to be 17 days, without any guidance, any support, any oversight, any direction about how they're supposed to actually make that happen. They just dictate a target and expect the post-acute providers to hit it. And I can tell you experientially, that's never going to happen. That's never going to work. It, it gets down to what I see is probably the biggest fundamental disconnect right now for a lot of people in the post-acute space who, who are looking at networks or have got a network is that you've got a network, you've got a group of providers, but you've really got to engage down in the weeds with these people to change behavior, to, to mm -hmm. go through that process change. Um, otherwise, they're not going to change. You might be able to shave two or three days off length of stay. You might be able to move readmissions down a percentage point or two. But the reality is if you really want to get to the point where you can build up a group of providers who can really not only impact utilization but become a resource for you to manage people who aren't even appropriate in the acute environment – you're going to have to engage with them to affect that change. One of the biggest opportunity spaces that exists is to be able to use post-acute as an acute avoidance, uh, as an acute avoidance setting. So a person presents in the ED, you move them into a clinical ops unit. They clearly have some degree of need that could benefit from monitoring and managing, but they're not, they're not an acute admission. You can't comfortably move that you shouldn't have to move them into the hospital. Well, I can't necessarily send them home because guess what? They're going to come right back to the ED in the next 24 or 36 hours. I need an option. And the reality is post-acute 
can potentially become that option if, and this is the big if, if they're clinically capable of managing that patient. And, and there, there are very few post-acute organizations who are fully entirely ready right now to do that. There are a lot who are very eager to learn and try, um, but they're not going to be able to do it entirely of their own volition. It's going to take guidance and help and engagement from a hospital or a health system that they work with to advance them into that space. And, and one, of the, one of the things I've seen in, in, along the line that you're talking about this engagement is a lot of um, use of some serious data sets to understand the uh, course that the patient should have been on sort of to predict this is where the, you know, this patient on day two of the nursing home stay should be here and day five, they should be here and so on. Do you, do you think that a provider group can, is that kind of overkill? Can a provider group engage in the way you're talking about and get in there with, with uh, maybe care managers and case management and, and um, using some simple data? Or do you, got, do you need some pretty serious high-tech uh, data and predictive analytics to do this work? Um, I think it's really a question. Of, it's a question of delta in my mind. How much do you want to move the needle? There is a tremendous because there is so much variation. Because there is because there is so much opportunity right out of the gate. You know, to to coin the phrase, uh, you know, is there a lot of low hanging fruit? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of low hanging fruit, and you can get a lot of that low hanging fruit with some pretty basic data, some 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 pretty basic measurement practice, simply by really teaching, you know, uh, folks how to do root cause analysis effectively, to bring providers together, to, to look at issues, to learn from the data. There's a tremendous amount of movement that can be made just on some fairly basic things. And, and what that does is that positions people to get ready for the more advanced things. There are a number of organizations, uh, I should say a small handful of organizations, around the country who've, who've deployed that degree of analytical depth, who, who are using predictive analytics um, to be able to really say, this patient presents with these particular characteristics, should be in the nursing home for 11 days. And as a result, during the 11 days, this is what you should do. A uh, portion of that evolves from evidence-based practice. Uh, a bigger portion of it just applies from large empirical data sets that say, you know, people within this distribution, the median point is 11 days. So, um, but, but, but there's, like I said, it's a limited number of organizations who can really do that effectively. For the lion's share of provider organizations, there's a lot of traction to be made with, with fairly first-generation kind of approaches to this. And, and this uh, low-hanging fruit and the data you need, where is this data that's already available to hospital systems, or is this data they need to obtain from the nursing homes themselves? Uh, it's, it's usually, it's, it's, it's kind of a mix of things, to be honest. If, if you're an organization and you're, you're, a, you're an SSP ACO or a next-gen ACO, or you're in, you're in a bundled payment scenario, there's a tremendous amount of post-acute data buried in your claims data. Um, applying the right analytics to it, you can really lift out and understand where the performers are. Um, you can look, the, unfortunately, so much of it is, is still retrospective, but you've got the data. You just really need to understand how to slice and dice it to, to be able to look at provider behavior. And then once you have that information about particular providers, then that creates the opportunity for you to go and have that conversations with provider or group of providers to understand what their operational behaviors or their clinical delivery behaviors are to really understand how to re-engineer the processes. Around some areas of performance, you, you do have to look to the post-acute providers to provide some data. 
Um, but but the reality is is that if you're in that if you're in a value based arrangement and you've got access to your claims analytics data and you know how to really interpret and use the data, you can you can accomplish quite a bit in the post acute space. For folks who are heavily into fee for service, there's not as much data readily available. In those types of environments, we are somewhat more dependent on uh, on the post acute providers to provide some data. Um, one of the things that a lot of organizations work to do is to very very much um, minimize the amount of data they're dependent on from the post-acute providers to provide because, frankly, a lot of them just don't have the degree of, of IT capability that, that we have, say, in the acute hospital environment and especially in the payer environment. So so you're, you're working with smaller pools of data, and as a result, you want to make sure you're working with data that you would consider reliable. Mm-hmm. Who around the country is really doing if anyone is doing really outstanding work in this area has been kind of ahead of the curve for maybe because they do have more Medicare Advantage uh, products and uh, more patients in those products, or they're just at risk in other ways. Um, and and what, what are they doing this and are they doing it well? Are they demonstrating that this actually works? Um, yeah, I mean, there are, it's, it's interesting because, because like so many things right now, you know, it's everybody kind of just by way of comparison, you know, everybody approaches their own AC or accountable care organization in a, in a slightly different way. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to say there are any one, two or three organizations who are doing everything just right, but there are a number of organizations who, who, who've built, you know, fairly robust engagement strategies and, and networks are a big part of that. Um, with, with post-acute providers, just, you know, by way of example, um, advocate in the greater Chicago area has been working in this kind of space and engagement with post-acute provider organizations, um, and multiple levels of networks at multiple levels of care, um, for, for the better part of, you know, going on 15 years, um, in some instances close to 20 years. And and it's not all necessarily just Medicare Advantage. Some of their, their early work in doing post-acute started out of the managed care. Uh, Genesis and managed care, but it's, it, it continued to advance. Uh, the Franciscans in, in central Indiana have been very, very proactive in this space um, as well. Some of the, the early pioneer ACOs, uh, by way of example, in the Boston market collaboratively came together and defined their expectations of post-acute provider organizations early on. Um, because there was going to be so much ACO presence in that market, someone was very forward thinking to say, let's work collaboratively so the array of post-acute providers don't have to meet five competing sets of expectations. We'll just define one uniform set. Um, what, what's also interesting to look at is is how some of the, what I would consider to be advanced post-acute organizations have approached some of these things. Kindred, the largest integrated post-acute provider organization in the country, has been very, very innovative in, in how it's uh, approached not only its business model, but, but how it's really trying to position itself to be a turnkey post-acute solution for organizations and a tremendous amount of, of work they've done in being able to very quickly and rapidly identify appropriate levels of post-acute placement, uh, among a great many other things. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, let me switch gears with you. Boy, you know, again, this is so wonderful, the uh, the way you're putting this together and, and, and sharing this information. It's really helpful. Uh, the there, there are some changes uh, happening uh, in this market. Uh, CMS uh, is going to next year in 2019 is going to shift the payment to uh, nursing homes from what they call rugs now, these uh, resource utilization groups, um, which is the payment you I think you were outlining before to 
something that's more uh, akin to like a DRG type of thing, which is called these, um, uh, uh, I think, uh, patient-directed payment models, PDPMs, I think, if I'm, cor- I'm remembering correctly. And so that's going to drive some changes in, in the nursing home world, and I think with some implications around home health care. So can you say can you say something about that? Sure. I It's... Um... There is. You, you've touched on what is absolutely central to probably the single biggest sea change, a major paradigm change for the post-acute industry that, that's going to transpire here in the next two or three years. You know, with, with those four discrete venues that I talked about in post-acute care, SNF Home Health, Acute Rehab, and LTAC, every single one of those has their own payment systems. So you got four venues, you got four discrete payment systems. And, and one of the questions that's risen up in that is that Patients with relatively similar diagnoses could end up in any one of those four venues. And without, you know, the defined selection criteria or that process, um, there is, you know, all this variation that exists in post-acute care. And so one of the things that came out of the IMPACT Act, um, which was a major piece of legislation, which really defined um, some various big changes um, in in how we report post-acute quality, was a charge to to MedPAC to study a, a site-neutral payment system for post-acute care. So really, you know, the question is rather than having four payment systems where site of care determines payment, what if diagnosis were to determine uh, the level or degree of payment regardless of location, hence site-neutral? And so uh, there, there's an array of study that was done by it, and it was 2016, uh, MedPAC reported that site-neutral payment was entirely viable could be implemented in their opinion by 2023, uh, but additional study would be merited. Well, 2017, they came out and reported that, yep, definitely restudy site-neutral payment we think is entirely viable. In fact, we think the industry could move in that direction by 2021. So they moved the timetable up um, up two years. And the the PDPM shift um, for for SNFs is a stepwise progression towards really site-neutral payment. And the, the model of site-neutral payment, r- right now, home health, acute rehab, LTAC, they're all paid episodically. Shifting the nursing home industry from a per diem payment model to an episodic payment model is a big, big deal. Of the roughly 29,000 post-acute providers in our country, more than half of them are nursing homes. And so that's going to be a huge fundamental paradigm shift for them. At the same time, they're talking about changing the, the home health model, episodic model, from a 60-day to a 30-day model. Most people speculate or, you know, the, the, the analysis points in the direction that historical payment levels at the acute rehab or the LTAC environment will be greatly reduced under, um, under a unified payment model. What we're really talking about creating is a DRG-like model for, for, for all of the post-acute venues. And that, you know, the, the, the whole nature of follow the money, the, the reality is, is this, this single big shift in, in payment uh, for post-acute care will turn a lot of the industry uh, uh, definitely sideways and for some people completely upside down. Will it actually happen by 2021? I, I think it will be interesting to see, um, but it, it's it's looming out there for a lot of provider organizations. And in 2021, it always seems mind-boggling to me, but you know, 2021 is two and a half years away. We're really not that far away from it when you think about it. And uh, for for provider organizations, the the time to start thinking about how you adjust in that space is now. For for hospitals and health systems, it's a big deal because that provider base that that we've always turned to or referred patients to or we've built our networks out of, 
that's going to change. So that's turbulence for us in terms in terms of our partners. For the for the 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 component or portion of of hospitals and health systems that own and operate post acute assets, it's a minority of them. But it, for them, this is a shift in their operating model for those for those ancillary lines of business. So it's a it's a big big shift. And and so. What what are the implications for that as we move into this new payment model? And you, you're saying it's kind of neutral to site. So what does that actually mean? And what what changes? What do you think is going to change? And we, you said for a lot of these SNFs, uh, which make up the large percentage of the posting care facilities, it's not going to just turn them sideways. It's going to turn them upside down. And by, by that, I, I'm assuming you mean they're not going to survive. And so... What is what once this law once this goes into into uh, this is enacted and deployed this new payment model? What do you see the landscape looking like? Uh, the you know I everybody's reads the crystal ball a little bit different way. I, I think from my perspective, what it's going to look like is it's going to be a much smaller provider base. We're we're, we're going to drop from twenty nine thousand total post acute providers to to a, a smaller number. How much smaller? I, I don't even want to speculate. Some folks contend that anywhere from 25 to 45% of the nursing home industry could go out of business. Um, I, I don't wed myself to any one particular of the set of those numbers other than to say it's going to impact providers. We're going to go through a tremendous amount of consolidation. The number of aggregate beds um, that are available, say, in the nursing home industry are probably going to reduce somewhat but the number of providers is going to reduce dramatically. So like in any other, you think about any other industry uh, that, that operates in our country, there's always a degree of consolidation. We've been watching consolidation transpire in the hospital and health system industry, you know, for a number of years and greatly accelerated, has greatly accelerated in the last seven or eight years. We're going to see that same kind of impact start happening in, in, in the post-acute space. A lot of it's already transpired in the, in, in the home health space. Um, and that that consolidation, you know, inevitably um, is is potentially in the long run, probably going to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But what it's what it's going to create in the interim is, is just turbulence, a lot of turbulence. Right. Do you think that it's going to drive more uh, disposition of uh, patients from the hospital towards home health care and towards just home or? as we have less number of SNFs available? Um, yeah, yeah, there's no question it will. I don't think, but it, it, part of that's going to be driven by a shift to site-neutral payment. Part of that's already the, a, a trend that's already underway um, it, it, for any number of reasons. I mean, home health comparatively is is far less expensive. Some organizations across the country have, have adopted a what what we characterize as a home health-only strategy. Everybody's going to go home, which is 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 not oftentimes the best solution. Home health is not a panacea. It can't do everything. It can do a lot of things, but it, it, it can't do everything. But the the preference that that people have about wanting to receive service in their home um, is very very powerful. And and the, you just think about the aging wave that that's just getting started in our country. Um, and the, the nature of the baby boomer movement um, are, are going to want more and more service in their home. I mean, we, we live in an environment now, just you think about the impacts of, of retail behavior as they trickle in more and more and more into healthcare all the time. You know, the, the nature of, of Amazon and what it's done to the traditional bricks and mortar retail model, the nature of in-home service from a healthcare or medical delivery perspective is only logically going to follow. And so home health is well positioned for that. 
home health is the foundation upon which organizations are going to be able to really leverage models like the hospital at home that's been demonstrated um, by a number of organizations across the country. It's the foundation upon which house calls or independence or home, you know, in-home physician care for, for chronic and elderly patients has, have evolved. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's probably the platform for a lot of people moving into the future. And so uh, we, we've seen that reflected in the, in the transaction space around post-acute care. For the last few years, people were buying up nursing homes like crazy. That's kind of stopped. People are rapidly looking to acquire or retool or redevelop home health organizations or, or grow larger home health agencies. So it's it's going to be the, the, the wave of in-home service or the interest in in-home service is not going to fade anytime soon. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I a couple of thoughts about this. One is uh, I, I'm surprised at how much work is happening around the country in terms of the home, uh, both, as you're pointing out, home health care, but, but even hospital at home. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do an upcoming interview with uh, someone from the Brigham Women's Hospital, uh, Dr. Uh, David Levine, and um, he's published on this. Uh, they, they have a division that basically from the emergency room, they call it ad admitting to home. So if a patient is able to be is, should be admitted to the hospital, they actually have it admit to home and they send the hospital at home and the patient goes home with uh, with the hospital care at home. So this has already been researched. It's been studied. It's been you know written up in peer reviewed journals. This is happening, uh, as you point out. Um, and I think uh, the movement to get more people to home with home health care is also growing. And you I remember in the in the talks you gave, you were talking about, you know, the market is already um, is already demonstrating this happening in that you're saying the valuation of SNFs is going down and the valuation of home health companies is increasing like markedly. And you, you quoted some numbers in terms of how much the valuation is right now in home health. Do you, do you have those numbers off the top of your head? Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. And I, I, I had written down a note. Um, historically, you know, the way we, the, the way that people have historically valued, um, a, a lot of post-acute transaction work is on nursing homes. We, we value it on the basis of beds. So a cost per bed basis, but, it, but in home health, it's, it's really multiples of EBITDA. So you're looking at a, an agency's potential earning potential, and you're putting a multiple against that. And that finds a, a potential purchase price for folks. Historically, we've looked at EBITDA numbers, EBITDA multiples that were at three X, five X. Um, for really high-performing agencies, some at 1x, 2x, depending on where they're at. There have been some transactions, um, and not just a few. There have been a number of transactions that have tr transpired in the last year, year and a half, with multiples in the 9x to 15x range. So the the perceived value of home health agencies has, has really just shot through the roof. And uh, as a result, and, and part of what drives that is it's very, very hard right now to, to start a new home health agency. The process by which Medicare certifies agencies was changed a number of years ago. If as an operator, you want to start a home health agency, you have to go at operational risk for as much as 12 to 18 to 24 months before you're ever going to get a dime of, of, of payment. And so as a result, uh, people have been averse to try and start new agencies. So the, the tactic is I got to buy one. And right now they're, they're selling at premium prices. Yeah, I mean th those kinds of valuations, those multiples. I mean, you, you only see that in the in the digital tech sector. Um, that's, I mean, that really speaks to something: the importance of, of home health for the future of healthcare yep. uh, and home environment. I want to I want to go, and I know we're we're going over time, but this is such a a I mean fascinating 
conversation and fascinating learnings from you. I want to go upstream a little bit. Uh, and in, in some of our previous um, correspondence, you, you know, you've, you've expressed, look, we're talking about post, you've, you've expressed some concern about the lack of um, uh, care, this attention to, to chronic disease management in the home, in senior care, the, the lack of addressing social determinants of health, sort of this, sort of this unmanaged chronic illness in the, in the growing elderly population, which you know you've you've actually described as a potentially as a looming crisis, and and it just seems to me that in our system again of healthcare across the country we've been reactive. Uh, it's a fee for service system. You get paid for when people show up in the hospital, when they get show up in the post acute care facilities. You don't get paid for preventing all of that uh, up till now. And so there's a lot of opportunity to go upstream into the home, into these uh, senior care communities and actually manage chronic illness in a way that we have it to date. Clearly, that is the optimal way to go, to be proactive and preventive uh, with the uh, older population and with the population suffering from chronic illness, from complex chronic illnesses. And so... What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, 99% of Medicare spending is attributable to chronic disease in our country. And when, when you think about that, the, the nature of Medicare as a system, the way it's designed, is exactly what you've touched on. It's, it's reactive. Um, we don't, you know, uh, there are very few aspects of Medicare um, as a, Medicare is a fee-for-service that really encourage or focus on preventative care. M M MA plans are a lot more um, proactive and forward-looking about that, about closing gaps in care, about making sure that people are, are doing preventative diagnostics and preventative screenings and things of that nature. But but for the most part, I mean, most of our healthcare system is driven, or at least a lot of the cost associated is driven with crisis management. person ends up in the hospital, you manage after the fact. The, the reality right now, and it's interesting to see just some comments that came out, you know, earlier this week, from, from the current administration about the fact that, you know, they, there's a desire on the part, at least a stated desire, to get more and more ACOs to take, to, to shift from one-sided to two-sided risk. I can't even remember what the number is, but a, a healthy majority of the ACOs in our country are one-sided risk environments. And to take two-sided, you know, to move to a two-sided risk model, you really got to start thinking downstream. I got to think about preventative management. I got to think about addressing the people before they even show up in the high-cost setting. Um, or, or there's no way I can be successful in that environment. And that means managing a chronic population. Our system is built really well to treat very, very sick people. And people who are not quite very, very sick yet, um, we haven't quite figured that out. It's interesting. I've been involved in a number of conversations just in the last several months with uh, a number of the, the payer organizations and, and talking with them about what are you going to do about chronic populations? And a lot of what drives chronic populations is social determinant related. So it's their, it's their housing environment. It's their access to primary care. It's food insecurity. And it's things that historically hospitals and health systems have seen outside their purview. Um, and so as a result, it's, it's a really, really unfamiliar space for a lot of organizations. Um, elder care organizations spend a lot of time working with, with chronic elders. They deal with chronic population and not just people living in elder communities, but, but people living in the broader community. Um, people living in their own homes. And so for, for payers and for, for ACOs and others looking at two-sided risk, understanding how to address chronic disease and managing chronic disease in a proactive way is going to be central to precluding those individuals from, from really tipping and becoming frail at risk. And it, and it, it's, 
it's the issue in my mind really isn't that, you know, it's, it's 20% of the population versus 5% of the population. It's 20% of a boomer wave that is so many people that the, the system will inevitably collapse under its own weight if we don't figure out how to manage them more proactively. And we're back to that, we're back to that retail component, that consumerist perspective of the boomers, which is, you know, I don't want to have to go anywhere for my care. I want it brought to me. And we've got to figure out really as a system, how do we burrow more down into that chronic population? We try and, you know, we, we work on preventative well, um, you know, with, with smoking cessation or weight loss management or trying to get people on, on good maintenance meds for chronic illness in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. But for a lot of people whose chronic disease is unmanaged and that huge population that's coming, that's a thing that, that quite frankly, that. I have a friend who talks about, who makes the statement, well, I used to sleep at night. And the reality is, is that I think about that chronic population and I just wonder how are we as a system prepared to address that looming crisis? Right. I, I don't, and again, I'm, I'm going to introduce my bias here, but I, I don't think the answer is, you know, have them show up at doctor's offices. I mean, I, I think, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the solutions are, it's a different solution set. It's a different thinking. I think to your point, I think we have to reframe the whole way, reorient the whole way and redefine the problem in a completely different way. Cause it is, it is big. And I think, you know, I think it is a wave. Um, clearly the demographics of our population, uh, the growing elderly, um, the growing uh, percentage of people who have chronic disease, the, the stats are pretty astounding in terms of how many older people have uh, complex chronic uh, conditions, and it's getting worse, and it's going to be that way for many years to come. And so um, the current model, the current way, tweaking it, making it better is not the way we're going to come to this. I think, uh, you know, whether it's, 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 like you say, a focus on social determinants of health, a focus on home care, you know, I think uh, leveraging digital, I know, you know, I know Philips and other companies are, are clearly thinking about this and trying to figure out ways to be consumer oriented, to get into the homes, to get into senior communities and to provide this care. And I know companies are out there, too. So I think it's an exciting opportunity. Um, I just don't I don't see our legacy hospital systems and provider groups responding to this. What's what's your take on that? Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, to your point, I, I don't think the solution is is getting people to primary care offices. I think it's getting to those people before they end up in the primary care offices. And it's 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 we're not remotely engaged or prepared. I, I don't think enough organizations are even starting to think about these particular issues. It's like I said, you know, it's it's been it's been very very enlightening to me to talk with a lot of payers. Um, who, who say, we know this is out here, but we don't even know how we're going to begin in this space. And yet I know that a big chunk of my beneficiary population um, are these people, and I don't even know where they're at. I don't even know how, in some instances, I could identify them early on. So there's, it's, it is a complete, we talk about paradigm shifts in the post-acute space. It is a profound paradigm shift for us in it, from a, just an overall healthcare delivery system to think about how we how we reorient ourselves to this kind of population. Yeah, no, it's, and you could, you know, if we were going to sit down and do, uh, you know, some design think about this, but I mean, you could, again, this is exactly what you're saying. We need the predictive analytics to see, you know, tracking and, and, and monitoring folks in their homes to see who's getting worse, uh, predictive analytics to predict who's going to get worse, uh, interventions that are home-based and convenient and low cost, 
uh, you know, whether it's using, uh, who knows, you know, community health workers, we've been talking about that for years, but using, using lower cost options, using community-based options, leveraging, again, technology to help us uh, do this. But um, I, I do think it's, um, I, I, I get very excited about it because I think that there, we can really radically improve care and improve the cost of care if we jump on this. And so I, I think it's just a great, a great opportunity uh, for those of us and for those people who are interested in this and want to jump on it. Uh, so Andy, this is really great. I, 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 I love talking to you. I could, I, I really could pick your brain for hours, as you know, because um, when you were talking and I ran up to you and I was just like uh, hogging you while everyone else was trying to get to talk to you and ask questions. Let me ask you a couple of closing questions because we, we are now qu- quite past uh, the time we had uh, agreed upon. But what, what is there something in your work that you're most proud of and 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 what is the experience i know you've, you've been a consultant and an advisor for so many years um just say a word about that yeah i've boy it's a it's a it's a sometimes it's a tough question for me to even think about or answer it you know i've spent uh I, i've my my healthcare career is, is approaching the two decade mark and while i've spent a, a lot of time in that environment um, as a consultant, I've spent, you know, uh, patches of time and early on very much in the provider space. Um, and, you know, as a, when you're in the provider space, you know, there's, there's opportunity, I think, to, to feel that you're much more proactively engaged in, in, in the work of, of caring for individuals or, or, or helping people. Um, and, and so as a result, as a consultant, sometimes you get removed from that. I, I think, but also, and I've been a consultant long enough to, to, to be honest and frank with people that there are times you get, you can get very, very jaded as a consultant. And so a lot of times you, you work with organizations and they're, they're engaging you for your advice and they want your advice and they want you to help us help you with something. And you do that. And, and then at the end of the day, they do nothing with it, which is a consultant is probably about the most frustrating thing imaginable. Um, but it, you move on. And over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different organizations. And a number of those organizations, it's, it's really, really um, fun and rewarding, personally rewarding to watch those organizations who, who really engage with you via the, via the advisory process, via a working relationship to really figure out, help people understand their challenges, their problems if they have them and, and create with them or guide them or co-create solutions and then watch them deploy those solutions and have them be successful with it. And in some instances, in, in over my career, some folks have been wildly successful with the things that, that they've done. And I don't want to say that's things that I've done, but it's been, it's, it's been work that I've helped them with. Um, and, and really helped guide them to, and, and they've been successful with it. The last couple of years, I've been working with uh, a handful of provider organizations in markets across the country who are specifically focused on these these chronic issues that we were just talking about. And it's been really, really exciting to watch the uh, the advancements that, that they've made and we've made in, in trying to figure out how we could leverage some of these models and new thinking to start tackling some of these issues that that we really need to address. So it's 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 finding re- reward in, in in helping folks change their thinking and figuring out how they can be successful that that drives to to better patient outcomes and better healthcare for all of us because I I have a friend who's been in the elder care industry for a long long time and he always starts conversations by saying, "Do you want to play bingo?" And my conversation is, no, I really don't want to play, play bingo, to which he, we both agree we need to figure out a different way to do some of these things. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, last question. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Oh, boy. That's, 
Um, you know, it'll, it'll sound completely out of turn, but the best piece of advice I ever got was never bring a knife to a gunfight. And, and I've always taken that and it was given to me in the context of, of not so much that we all need to be ready for a gunfight as much as it is about always, you know, make sure that when you're walking into any scenario, you're really prepared appropriately for what's going to happen, that you've brought the, that you've brought the right knowledge, the right expertise to, to the table. And I, I think oftentimes, uh, we all, everyone has a place where they, as an opportunity or a situation where they find themselves completely ill-prepared. Um, and a lot of times that's simply attributable to the fact I didn't think ahead. And so being prepared for, for the kind of challenges that face us takes, uh, a lot of times thinking and planning ahead. I have, I have three teenagers and I, uh, I, I'm oftentimes find myself reminding them to think ahead and be prepared. A friend of mine, years and years and years and years and years ago, said to me, on time is late, early is on time. So if you're 10 minutes ahead of when you're supposed to be there, you are on time. And I think for a lot of us, especially in healthcare, we got to figure out how to be farther ahead of things because on time is just late. I, you know, Andy, I love that. On time is late and early is on time. I'm going to, boy, you, that was, those are two great pieces of advice um, and never bring a, gun, a knife to a gunfight. So, so Andy, I'm going to let you go. I want to just, again, can't thank you enough. Uh, I think this, I'm hoping that this is just the first of a series of conversations we have and, and maybe bring in some of your colleagues as well. But I, I really respect the, your expertise and your experience in this domain and um, your ideas. And um, again, really, really just uh, what a pleasure and a privilege to have this opportunity to to really talk with you about one of the most uh, and, and looming and important areas in, in healthcare, and particularly for the future of healthcare, both from a quality perspective, health outcomes perspective, public health perspective, as well as the economic uh, impact uh, it'll have uh, to uh, the larger society. So, so thank you. And, um, and then finally, uh, I do always have to, I'm compelled to turn to the audience and, and just express my profound gratitude uh, for those of you out there who are taking care of patients every day, uh, incredibly hard work, and, and you're doing it. And for those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I just want to express my gratitude again to you all. And uh, Andy, again, thank you. Jeff, thanks for the opportunity to join you today and would love to love to have a, another conversation at some point in the future. Yeah, let, let's plan on it. Okay. Thanks, Andy.